A long or arduous search for something. The act of seeking. The idea of a quest is littered throughout history with thousands of famous examples. Right now, humans want to go to Mars and return to the moon. The quest to solve climate or energy crises is happening in real time. What do these have to do with the disastrous and heroic voyage of the 1913 Canadian Arctic expedition? The life of the famous Apache leader, Geronimo. A 16th century explorer's death-defying navigation of the Amazon or the real-life adventures of David Crockett? In the words of our guest today, Buddy Levy, who's authored books with those titles, he says, humankind's quest for knowledge and understanding has set many a historical precedent. And these historical models provide sort of a connective tissue for today's innovators and thought leaders who will show us the way to do the things we need to do in the future to survive on this big rock. Join host Eric Weinmayer and guest Buddy Levy as they dive into the barriers these historical figures have confronted and pushed through, and what lessons we can learn from them. I'm producer Diedrich Junk, and this is the No Barriers Podcast. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. In that unexplored terrain, between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit, exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Hey everyone, welcome to No Barriers. I'm so excited to have Buddy Levy on, my good friend. It's pretty cool because uh, I'm giving um, myself a pat on the back, Buddy, because I know a lot of cool people. So uh, it, it struck me um, that I know you, and I'm like, this guy's amazing author. Why, let's, get, let's get him on talking about these incredible historical figures that you've written about and, and kind of looking at them through the lens of this No Barriers life that we talk a lot about at No Barriers. Um, you know, how you, people confront barriers, how they get through them. And, you know, if there are kind of some lessons in terms of how they do that. And uh, anyway, but you and I have known each other for, I don't know, like 20 years now, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's good to be here. And uh, yeah, it's, it, uh, I think we're into our early third decade or something of, know, of knowing yeah. each other. Yeah. And we got to know each other the first time on an adventure race. I was in greenland or on an island off the coast of greenland and you were one of the reporters that were sent and you kind of trailed our team and we got to know each other uh that was a hard race climbing over glaciers and climbing mountains and um i remember one day i think we did like twenty thousand feet of elevation gain it was crushing another day i think we did like a marathon through a boulder field cruising along the coastline and you did a lot of that with our team yeah, that was an amazing journey. I mean, I have to say, I um, when I found out uh, that you were 
going to be tra- going to Greenland. I had been covering these adventure races, you know, following Mark Burnett and the Eco Challengers all around, and then I I heard that um, this blind adventurer named Eric Weinmayer was going to be competing in this thing called the Arctic Team Challenge. This is two thousand and three, I believe. Yeah. So when I found that out, I was uh, I initially wanted to. Um, well, you know, I wanted to go to Greenland, really. It was, it was very <laughs> selfish <laughs> on my part. Uh, but then I thought, man, this is a good story. So I pitched it around and I got a few uh, articles uh, sold. And that was so great. I mean, I, I, I bumped into you actually in the airport in Minneapolis. Yeah. And then, you know, I started hanging out with your team. And, I, and Jeff was there and Rob Harsh and Cammy, And you kind of invited me along and said, hey, if you want to just... Uh, tag with our team that would be great and the the race organization let me do it and so yeah that was a really i mean what a great journalistic gig i got to uh tromp around greenland uh go in these rubber kayaks in these uh iceberg strewn fjords and then you know get my butt kicked by a blind guy up these mountains and uh, one of the coolest moments for me eric was when i i was uh you got you were summoning this mountain. It was called Polemsveld. It was this beautiful, massive peak jutting out of the fjords. And you said, you know, let's just come with us. And we got to this one point where I still have a picture of it. It, it there was this little like metal ladder up yeah. this really sheer face, and and I didn't want to go up it. It looked too gnarly, and the drop off was like fourteen hundred feet behind. And you said, you know, just watch me and uh, follow me. I, I got this. And then I, I just kept going. So thank you for that. <laughs> I remember Jeff's comment uh, on a narrow ridge up that very same mountain. He said, step left and you'll never see your wife and kids again. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. Those are those touching moments. <laughs> yeah. Touching but no, moments. That, yeah, but, it was an incredible. Well, well, I also, because we're hiking so long together and just, you know, long days and you're tired and you kind of lose your uh your filter a little bit i got to see the dark diabolical humor side of buddy levy you made us bust out <laughs> laughing so hard this is unscripted unbranded buddy levy uh yeah you know. well you know sleep deprivation not the kind that comes out on the book tours right right i get it i have editors <laughs> um yeah <laughs> but when you yeah when you have sleep deprivation and you've been trekking for a week you, yeah things come out of your mouth that you wish you could unsay but it worked but i love that side of you and we became really good friends and at some point you said hey you know we've worked together you've gotten to know no barriers uh, you've been out to our our programs and our summits and uh he said let's write a book together and i had no interest in writing a third book but uh, we wound up writing an amazing book together that, um, you know, at first I was like, I don't know if I have anything to say. Like, and then 450 pages later, <laughs> our, our, our editor's like, please shut up. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I kind of suckered you into that one, too, because we were on the uh, – Eric, uh, it was so nice of you to invite me to come along on the uh, Grand Canyon journey, you know. And then a week in or so when you were uh, – pretty thrashed and um, didn't have your, your capacities. Some night at the fire, uh, I was like, hey, you know, why don't we just write that book together? Let's let's do it. And you, you in a weak moment, you uh, acquiesced. It was great. Yeah. And, and it turned out to be a great decision. And so uh, thanks for being 
so connected to the no barriers journey, buddy. It's been really fun. So, um, but as I said, okay, so, so you become like a real expert and on all these amazing historical characters, you're an historian, you're a writer, you're a thought leader. Um, and so let's dive into some of these, these folks and some of these crazy adventures that honestly, like I, I got to say right up front, like your last book, Empire of Ice and Stone, it's like, it's, it, it scared the shit out of me. It's, you know, if you know about adventuring, uh, you, you actually are more scared <laughs> as you, as you read this, because you're like, wow, this is so serious what these guys are doing. So, so set that one up for me with, uh, these two really interesting, uh, leaders setting out on this Arctic expedition. And by the way, this book is getting tons of attention. So, you know, folks should definitely go out and, and read this book because even the New York Times wrote this glowing article uh, about uh, Empire of Ice and Stone. So congratulations. Oh, man, thanks so much for that. Yeah. Um, as you know, we, we set out on these uh, hard journeys and um, we do it because we love the, the storytelling. We love the process and uh, the results are usually for other people to determine. But uh, yeah, so just a little bit of backdrop. I, I wanted to, to say that on Empire of Ice and Stone, um, you know, th that was, uh, I'm in the midst of a three book ice trilogy. And this all actually started because of that trip to Greenland. And I had, while I was following you guys around, I also met another, this amazing adventurer named uh, Ingrid Asa, a Norwegian woman. And she was on a Greenland team with three other women. Yeah, and they, they were all uh, native Greenlandic women. And I got to know her pretty well. And by the end of the trip, she had handed me a book called The First Crossing of Greenland by Fritjof Nansen. And she said, do you know about this Norwegian explorer named Nansen? And I had to admit that I did not. And she said, well, you're going to love this. Uh, this guy was amazing. And, and as I started getting into it, I came to find out that Nansen uh, not only was one of the most celebrated Norwegian explorers uh, and explorers in the world, but he ultimately won the uh, Nobel Prize for Humanitarianism. This is in the in the wow. uh, uh, late 1800s and early 1900s um, for ref working with refugees. He was on that, you know, well ahead of uh, the crises that we are in today. Um, but, you know, when she handed me that book and, and said, you're, uh, you're going to love Nansen, I just I started really reading about Arctic explorers. And so uh, thanks for, for um, you know, that, that whole thing comes full circle. You never know, it's 20 years ago, you know, that you're going to end up on this other journey. Um, but yeah, so I, I wrote a yeah, book Yeah, what called, was their goal? Why, why the heck well, did they do this thing? So, so in Empire of Ice and Stone, it's, it's said in 1913, mm -hmm. this really quirky, um, a kind of an impresario, publicity-hungry guy named Wilhelmer Stephenson. He, he was an Icelandic American. He was actually born in Canada, but he had be, moved to North Dakota. And he had come back. And he from, went to Harvard. So, I mean, he clearly was like a really smart, dynamic human being. Yeah, absolutely. This guy was a chameleon. You know, he, he, uh, he was raised and brought up in North Dakota after uh, in his early childhood. He ended up 
getting kicked out of North Dakota for truancy because he was actually teaching um, substitute teaching while he was supposed to be taking classes. But then he just <laughs> immediately went to Iowa and finished his undergraduate degree in, in one year at the University of Iowa and then got accepted to Harvard for grad school. Within a year or two, he was off adventuring in, in the Arctic and doing ethnology and anthropology. And in, in 1913, when my book Empire of Ice and Stone begins, he has just returned from four years in the Arctic. And he's got this whopping tale about the so-called blonde Eskimos that he claims are descendants of Eric the Red and Leif Erikson, who have made their way all the way over from Greenland to uh, northern Canada and Alaska, the islands above there, and that they've never seen, they've never been, they're kind of uncontacted. And so all the media attention is on this this whopping tale about the, the blonde Eskimos, which, as the book kind of reveals later, he, he wasn't the first one to think to talk about it. And he's kind of using it as a marketing tool because he wants to get money for this grand new expedition that he's going to plan. So... He does that, and uh, the plan is for him, to, he, he wants to take about 16 scientists to the lands above northern Canada and the Yukon, sort of by the Mackenzie River where it comes out to the Arctic, and go for like four or five years and study the people there, uh, and also try to determine if there's undiscovered lands that no one has uh, been to before. And so that's that's this uh, that's his goal. And to do this, he hires the man named Robert Bartlett, who is a famous Newfoundland captain, an ice master, and he's the part of this family called the Bartlets of Brigus, who are these really well-known mariners. They've been and and Bartlett has major street cred because he had been to near the North Pole with Robert Perry. Uh, and almost, you know, he was with, Bartlett was with, within 150 miles of the North Pole and then was asked by Perry to turn back. And Perry ends up taking Matthew Henson, the African-American explorer. And it ends up being a, a big mistake, actually, on, on Perry's part because Bartlett was the world's greatest navigator. And Perry ends up having to defend um, his uh, readings and his claim of the North Pole is contested to this day. And if he just brought Bartlett along, my, my contention is that Bartlett probably would have been able to determine uh, with more accuracy where they were. Why is there a common thread with these guys, they, like being exaggerators <laughs> and promoters? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think part of it is because there was a great deal of um, fame and money to be made by these firsts, you know? Right. Uh, first uh, to make it through the Northwest Passage, first to find the North Pole. And so you could come home with that claim. And if you bag the North Pole, you now right. are, uh, you're an Arctic legend with a, a major book deal and also right. like a lecture tour. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But there's something else too. I mean, let's face it. They, you know, they didn't, it was hard to determine where you were like readings and, and the, you know, the sophistication of the equipment that we have today was, is so much better that, right. um, you know, it, there's a lot of guesswork involved. Um, and it was so vast and, and nobody's ever right. been there before. Right. Right. So I was thinking of the guy, who's the guy that lot like pretended he climbed Denali the first time. Was that oh, Perry? Man. I can't remember, I, but I it was another so. kind of Arctic. It was another <laughs> Arctic guy. That yeah. like took a photo and they determined it's not even near the summit of Denali. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, 
I'm not a big fan of that, but I, I kind of understand, uh, you know, you, you go up there. I mean, look, Robert Perry lost eight of his toes on a previous expedition. And so, you know, there's a lot of work to this. And I think they wanted some results out of it. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So that's really interesting because even though they're a little bit exaggerators and, and promoters, they're still tough as nails, these people. Right. Oh yeah, I mean it, it's really tough. They're not they're not total scam artists. They're really super hardcore human beings. Another question I'm really curious about. So Stephenson Wilhelm, uh, he takes off caribou hunting and then he just like disappears. <laughs> yeah, and, so, <laughs> and then just like leaves. This like, is weird. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean that's bizarre. Yeah, well, so like that doesn't seem like it's exhibiting good leadership. Although I guess you could go off caribou hunting and then the ice breaks and now you can't be- get back and you have you know what I mean? So like I'm trying to be empathetic. Yeah. But I'm I'm trying to figure it out. Well, so let's draw a couple of analogies here. I mean, you have been on so many different expeditions and I'm sure some of them have been, you know, conceived of and orchestrated and organized better than others. Is that true? Yes, of course. <laughs> and so then there are these um, then there are these variables that are somewhat out of your control. So uh, like like weather and um, you know in the Arctic polar seas you've got weather, wind, and currents. You know, but so just let me set the the tone here, the stage here for a second, because this is one of those uh, expeditions that literally. It goes foobar, uh, as they say in the military, uh, like right. as so, as so fast that you can't even believe it. Like they they <laughs> they take off in these three ships, and they're they're they leave. I'm, from, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not funny. No, it's, it's not. It's, it's only yeah, so, funny with but, you know what they say is comedy is tragedy plus time. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we've got a oh hundred years or so. Yeah. Um, okay. Good. But so, so you know, a, earned it's right into the in, into comedy. <laughs> Yeah, so Stephenson like organizes this trip by Arctic expedition standards really fast, like within less than like six months. Uh, he gets together all these scientists. They arrive from different places, and then they uh, convene in Esquimalt, British Columbia. Then he he says, "Okay, we're going to meet in this three ship armada above uh, Nome," and so they they sail up through the Bering Strait, and then they get to Bartlett arrives in. He realizes that the ship is in the ship. The Carla is in terrible shape, and it's not enough ship for the job. Um, the he jokes that the mo, the motor of the ship has as much power as an old coffee pot, and, he, and he's trying to take this bashing through Arctic flows. You know, so they got the wrong. They so Stephenson has this plan. Like we're all going to go to to Herschel Island, and and we'll take these three ships: the Carla, the Mary Sachs, and and the uh, Alaska. These three ships, and we're going to reorganize all the stuff there. So they got a rendezvous point. Well, they don't even make it to the rendezvous point before the weather comes in. It blows the armada apart, and they're, they're separated. You got the wrong members of scientists on the wrong ships. Stephenson, Stephenson is on the, the Carlick with Bartlett and a number of scientists, and he has had the good sense to hire an Inupiat uh, family for hunting and sewing and stuff. But the, like two days after they set off above Alaska, a storm blows in and and separates the ships. Now they float for a couple months in a and they get they get stuck in this ice flow. Like it encases all around them and just traps them, so that they can't really 
move the ship on its own power. They're just at the mercy of the, it's like a mile and a half square ice chunk and they're in the middle of it. And so then the, the, the event that you're talking about is the most controversial event of the whole book. After a couple, actually six weeks of floating, Stephenson, they're still like within 10 to 15 miles of the north coast of Alaska. And Stephenson says, hey, we need fresh meat. I'm going caribou hunting. And he takes two of the best Inupiat hunters, three scientists, and 12 of the best dogs. And he tells Captain Bartlett, I'll be back in 10 days to two weeks if no accident occurs, is how he phrases it. Um, and then one day out, he, a giant storm comes in. He's Stephenson is stranded with these other guys on a little island off the coast of Alaska. And the Carluck is now careening at 30 to 60 miles a day out into the Arctic Ocean towards Siberia. <laughs> wow. You know? And so that's where the story, I think, really uh, takes on this new impetus because Stephenson, I, I toggle back and forth between the members of the Carlick and what's happening and how Bartlett is handling the situation and then what Stephenson does subsequent to leaving the ship. And so it's really, it's really kind of cool because you keep going back and forth for a while until Stephenson, uh, I kind of leave him because he is doing his own thing and he start, tries to re-outfit his scientific party from the members of the other ships. And then you're with Bartlett and the crew and these scientists and this Inupiat family on this survival journey of about nine months. Wow. It's, it's incredible. So they get separated and then Bartlett decides to go off and, and, and go for a rescue, right? Yeah. So one of the things that, that's really, I think, um, connected to No Barriers and what you all do and the message that, you know, has been morphing and, and growing over the years yeah. is how is how to deal situationally, right, with right. everything that's getting thrown at you, you know. And yeah. Robert Bartlett— I mean, these guys are trying to make decisions on the fly, so I'm trying to be very empathetic and forgiving because it's, like, insane the conditions that they're facing right. so as what they're happens, making these decisions. Yeah, I mean, Bartlett finds himself in a, in a really tough situation because the, the ship— the Carlock is is moving on this drift that, by the way, that that Norwegian uh, explorer, Fritjof Nansen, ha is the first one who had d intentionally just he, he discovered this drift and he intentionally locked himself in a ship. But he had devised a better a rounded hull that didn't get crushed. Right. But Bartlett knows that the ship is going in a particular direction. They're able to take readings. He's very concerned because... The ice flows in this area, you know, they're massive. Some of them are 15, 20 miles long, and they're, they're like, you know, immeasurable in, in weight and power. And so they're, they're beginning to encroach around his flow, and there's, he knows that he, the ship is probably going to get crushed. It's a matter of time. So Bartlett knows that they're heading generally toward this place called Wrangell Island, which is 100 miles above northern Siberia. And he yeah. knows that if the ship gets crushed, I'm going to have to have all enough gear to survive on the ice for a couple of months. Because in addition to the weather, which is getting to be like 50 below, it's now, this is in uh, October 1913. 
uh, in addition to the weather. So as we get near December, uh, the long night is going to set in and there's going to be no more light. So you won't be able to travel then, right? It's going to be dark all day and all right. night. Or, or near, kind of a terminal, yeah. terminal yeah. dusk. Um, right. Wow. So he he begins organizing and uh, keeping men busy on the ship. And, you know, he, he gets a year's worth of food and coal and provisions and they build uh, Piri-type sleds. And so there, there's this hive of activity uh, leading up to what he knows is going to be the eventual destruction of the ship, right? And right. so I was really impressed with Bartlett's managerial skills. His uh, He never freaks out. He, you know, he, he delegates, uh, you know, authority to certain members, gives them responsibilities, puts them in charge of the commissary and, you know, and says, OK, you you all will go hunting. But what he understands and, and you start to get this foreboding sense of what's going to happen, which is that the ship's going to get crushed and then they're going to have to live on the ice for maybe two months. And when the light comes back in February, they're going to be able to bolt well, bolt is not the exact term, <laughs> make their way yeah. ponderously across this buckled, dangerous, moving ice toward this island. And that's where, to me, the the story really get, picks up drama because, you know, people who think, they think of the Arctic and the polar seas, unless they've, unless they've been on them, as kind of flat, like ice rink, you know? Yeah. And it, it no, is... it's pans, right? I just interviewed Eric Larson, the polar. Oh expert. wow! Yeah, yeah, and he was talking about the pans and and these sheets of ice that are colliding and separating constantly, um, and and so yeah, I mean, so yeah, definitely go go that direction, buddy, because that's what I was gonna. I, I would definitely want to know how you know. There's this terrifying scene where they're like in this kind of mega mid. Uh, a mega mid, by the way, is like a uh, they build ice walls out of blocks of ice and then you they put a canvas tarp over it right and then they laid blankets and stuff like that skins for their feet you know and and uh like the middle of the night the freaking ice starts breaking apart like it splits one guy's uh igloo in half like i, I mean this is terror <laughs> right right i mean so yeah it's amazing how uh they uh, the other thing that was struck me so much, in addition to just the, you know, the condition of the ice, which is moving in these flows and is kind of open leads, yeah. like you're saying, they can sometimes rupture right beneath uh, your your igloo. But also where ice, where giant ice uh, collides with right. other ice and with landforms, like with spits, they, it, they create these giant pressure ridges. They're like a hundred foot tall ridges of rumble uh, of rubble and solid ice that they have to pick their way through. And so what Bartlett Which is so difficult. Yeah, I mean, and, you insanely know, difficult. And it's it's really cold, and and you're getting wet constantly because sometimes they fall through the ice into these leads, but the salt water kind of keeps them buoyant, so they don't completely submerge. But they may be waist and, deep. And Eric Larson, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but he was saying that you know, like they would take like he put his dry suit on. He'd get to like a peninsula and he'd look across 100 feet across to the next, you know, ice mass. And he'd put his dry suit on and swim across. They'd create some kind of buoyancy for the sleds. They'd tie them all together. And then they'd he'd literally pull those things across to the next landform. And they, these guys couldn't do that kind of thing. You know, 
they get out to like this peninsula and they're trapped, right? Yeah. Or they get to those walls of ice and they're, what do you even do? Right. So when, when one of the journeys, so I, the book is sort of broken up into a, a three or four sections. And essentially it's that, you know, once the ship does sink and there's a really dramatic scene in which Bartlett, you know, he has planned ahead and he's got everything out on this stable flow and they name it shipwreck camp. <laughs> and they watch the they watch the Carlick go down. You know, it's this really dramatic scene where he he puts on Chopin's funeral march on the phonograph, and then he steps off the ship as it sinks, and this puff of steam from the boiler goes up, and they just now they're sta- they're stranded on the ice, right? But they have built, like you say, they've built these shelters. One is a box house with some crates and stuff as walls and then ice blocks for another wall and a canvas roof. And then others a pretty big igloo. But once they need to go to Wrangell Island, um, they have a general notion of the direction and it's a two week ordeal of relaying in double hauling. So they can only carry so much of the food that they have. They have tons of food, but they're not able to carry it all because of the weight restrictions of uh, the dogs and and them being able to move it. So they start west and they build these igloos. It's a really elaborate and, and organized, um, but also terrifying, as you mentioned, journey because th- they're attacked by polar bears, for one thing, while they're moving, awesome. you know. And, you know, it's funny because people are like, well, couldn't they hunt polar bears? And I'm like, well, yeah, the polar bears were hunting them. Though <laughs> that's yeah. the thing, yeah. the polar bears like because sometimes they're carrying seals along, you know, and and the polar bears are got the scent of that seal, but so they they have to tr- like slog fifteen to sixteen hours a day, build an igloo at the end of the day, uh, and then get into it with like a little Primus Swedish stove with fuel, you know, get some heat up some pemmican gruel and uh, blubber soup, and then. Uh, you get up the next day and, and do it again. And they built these series of igloos that were kind of like way stations or base camps. They had like an igloo every 10 miles. Um, and it took them two and a half weeks to get to Wrangell Island. I will just say without spoiling too much that not everyone survives that journey, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, incredible hardship. And, but also, you know, the these not only Bartlett, but there were other members of the team. A man named William McKinley, who was a Scottish schoolteacher when he left on this journey, had never been on the ice. And then a Norwegian uh, ski racer named Bjarn Mammen, who these guys end up being, you know, like they surface in ways that they had never intended. And I think that's one of the things that No Barriers teaches us is that. You know, you never actually know what you're going to be able to pull off or rise to until you're put in a position where your life is it's literally at stake here, you know? Right, right. And yeah. there are some very moving scenes where, you know, some of these members, um, and they took, they kept really, really elaborate diaries, which is uh, impressive given that they're writing, you know, with frozen fingers in an igloo. Um, and there's, you know, the innermost thoughts of their fears and stuff. They're, they're confiding in their diary, their fears about will they let down Captain Bartlett or will they let down their families. And, um, but a, a number of them really, really shore up in ways that surprise even them. 
And that's so cool. Like even on mountain expeditions, you see that you see like the true nature of human beings uh, come out. You see certain people kind of shrink and just fall apart. And you see other people, unexpected folks just rise up to the occasion and go, wow, they're so much above and beyond what I thought they were. And, and it was the environment that brings that out. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really appropriate and, and pertinent in this story. I mean, um, William McKinley is an example. He's the guy weighs like 140 pounds when he starts out on this journey. He's, they call him Wee Mac. He's a little dude. And he ends up being one of the strongest ones. Like he, he Bartlett, you mentioned that Bartlett goes on this, uh, this mythic. Uh, so after he gets them to Wrangell Island, Bartlett says, look, these people, they're, they're in really bad shape. The ones who survive when they get to Wrangell Island, they're in really terrible shape, frostbitten, hypothermic. Uh, they did bring some wall tents. And so they, they have some, some shelter, but it's, it's, uh, really, it's nasty there. It's March. And Bartlett decides if everybody, if anybody's going to survive here, I, he has to do this 700 to 1,000 mile uh, trek across the long strait to Siberia. And then to, no one in the world knows that they're there So they because they have no radio. And so when Bartlett takes off uh, on with one Inupiat hunter uh, and uh, half a dozen dogs, he leaves the rest of them to hunt and try to survive and, and, you know, keep warm with driftwood. And this Island is like a hundred miles long and 50 miles top to bottom. And there's not, there's some food there, but they're going to have to pretty much live on their own. And then you start to see, yeah, like it's kind of like Lord of the flies at that point, <laughs> you know, they're, they're on this Island and you, you see the true nature of those who, are self-seeking a bit and you know because there ends up being some some kind of mutinous behavior and there's also some really heroic behavior of people uh it's, it's incredible hmm. one of the things i notice about a lot of your books is it's these small bands of people having to come together to survive against huge obstacles you know like i'm thinking of like river of darkness these these characters set out and it they set out for greed i guess and they they right for glory. Um, glory for gold and glory yeah. and but and then they they boat down the marignon which is like the biggest river of the amazon right yeah and and they're just this tiny group of people that are you know hundreds of of of, of indigenous people are like firing arrows and attacking them constantly like how do you even sleep? They're just floating down with like arrows flying through the air constantly, you know, th passing every village, you know, and it, it, you kind of go, how are these people surviving? You know, and I know a lot of them don't, but. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point because I, so I've written about the conquistadors as well, as you mentioned, and, and, um, and that's like hundreds of people against um, like millions of Aztecs. Right, right. Well, yeah. Uh, in the so I wrote a book called Conquistador about Cortez's vanquishing of the Aztec Empire, and then I wrote that follow-up book, which is happens only twenty years later, which is set in the Amazon. It's the Pizarro brothers, and then this guy Oriana, Francisco Oriana, who are traveling down the uh, the entire length of the Amazon. You know, and I think that there are some char characteristic differences of course to to these arctic expeditions but there are some 
really um, amazing similarities too, which is that right. uh, you know you, you you have these goals, and the goals we can look at uh, and question or not. I mean, people who are trying to summit Everest as you've done, and or or achieve any kind of expedition that's really hard, you set out with a a kind of goal, and then the question becomes uh, when invariably you you are confronted with these obstacles which are going to happen right i mean that's that's part of life that's part of attempting hard things and then it's what do you do in the face of the obstacles and so i yeah i'm always drawn i mean i think the, i'm drawn to stories in which people are are placed in really long odds and whether it was there whether the there was virtue in the in the quest is sort of a different question. I mean, I, I do tend to grapple with that question uh, a little bit, uh, whether there was virtue in the quest itself. But I'm more interested in once the quest goes sideways, <laughs> then yeah. wh what happens? And so I'm really glad you brought that up because in the case of, of Cortez trying to, um, you know, conquer this, well, he, he lands on the shores of Mexico and he, he didn't really know even what was there. So I like that idea of people going to places that no one has ever been before, right? So when when the conquistadors... No Sherp, there's no Sherpas to carry your gear. Well, I mean, there's yeah. no maps, right? Yeah. Like, this is real. I mean, it's really... Like, when Cortez lands on the shores of Mexico and he has his first... In, the Spanish have their first encounter with the indigenous people there. It's kind of like... Those people who were already there are thinking like aliens just landed here, right. you know, and these guys have horses, which is weird because the horse had gone extinct on the mainland continent. And so Cortez brought horses and, and he brought firearms. Right. So now he's using this shock and awe terror against these people to try to convert them over. And actually, he realizes he's incredibly outnumbered. So he was very clever at figuring out how to get. Uh, allies, right? And so Cortez's superpower, in my opinion, was uh, one, and, and this is true of almost all of these people that I write about, is adaptability and flexibility on the fly, right? He realizes things quickly, like that these uh, subservient groups that are living, you know, Mexico City, he keeps hearing about, he's never been there, it's Tenochtitlan. He, the, people are saying there's this incredible city and there's a ruler there, and we all have to pay tribute to him. We have to give him taxes in the form of humans for human ritual sacrifice. And Cortez is like, oh, really? Well, maybe we can just uh, kind of conscript a whole bunch of you, and you guys can help. And we'll all go, I want to talk to this guy. And so he ends up getting allies, and that's really, he could have never done it without, without them. Allies in the form of uh, these other satellite tribes to help him build ships and help him make the siege on the city. Yeah. And in similarly in, in, uh, in river of darkness, when, uh, you know, this guy, uh, Pizarro and Oriana, they get separated pretty quickly as they're going down. Uh, you know, they've crossed over. There's the a lot end. of separations <laughs> in your books. Well, yeah. So everything starts out like, what did, what did, uh, Mike Tyson say, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. 
exactly right. And so right. There, all these stories, somebody gets punched in the face pretty quickly, you know. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, and it's like, okay, so now what I love about River of Darkness, you know, is that the plan was to go find uh, they 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 trek over the Andes, right? They've 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 heard that there's this golden man, this uh, El Dorado. He's encased in gold, and then every day he washes himself off in the lakes, and and he's been doing this for years. And so the bottoms of the lakes are filled with gold dust and trinkets that they've thrown as offerings. And so their like plan is to go down and find out if there's gold over the mountains and in this basin. But they bite off you know, way more than they had ever, They again, they didn't know the topography. They didn't know that they were about to enter the largest river system in the world, right? So then they're just floating along <laughs> in these little dugout canoes and they built boats um, themselves. And that's, again, the kind of no barriers thing that I, I really was respected. So, you know, this guy, Oriana, realizes once they're separated, they're just moving downstream. We're going to need to actually stop for a month or six weeks. Uh, they they had a forge with them that they'd brought on horses, and they made nails from like horseshoes that they took off the dead horses, and they actually construct two ships. Uh, well, not ships, navigable boats that could hold like twenty people. So they wow. in the jungle, swarmed by mosquitoes and vampire bats, uh, and fortunately they had encountered a, a friendly group of, of uh, indigenous people that let them stay there and gave them some food. And they build two ships, you know, like, and then continue on down the river or they would have all just died. And so that kind of um, manufacturing skill and ability to just go, okay, here's what needs to happen. We have to have ships. And there's a, there's a through line with all these leaders. At, let's say Cortez, um, Oriana is the guy with River Darkness. And what he, what, he was able to do is realize that if we're not, some of these tribes are hostile. So he knew that language was a key. And so to his survival and his men's survival. So he started creating a dictionary as he went and he had a, he had a transcribing friar uh, with him, like a chronicler whose job it was to just chronicle everything that happened. And that guy he created a dictionary. And so by a couple months in, by now, this guy Oriana has learned enough language where he can he can say to the people he's encountering, "Look, we're just trying to get to the bottom of the river. We we are we come in peace. You know, we're not attacking you. We are uh, just trying to move through this land and and river." And that's a beautiful. That's a, that is a huge sign of a leader, right? Like somebody who's saying, "Like I might not survive for like another two days, but if I do." I'm going to start building a repertoire of knowledge here to be proactive to get me through this in insanity. I mean, that's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And also, um, you know, I, I thought I was really impressed by uh, Oriana because the other conquistadors before him, including Cortez and including the Pizarro brothers, were absolutely ruthless, brutal murderers. You know, like they, they did this for king and crown and gold, but... I do think that Oriana illustrated a kind of shift, which was, look, you know, I'm not going to torture everyone I encounter. Like this isn't a good business model, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was incredible. So, in in the context and the lens of like of of modern 
times. Like these people were despicable. Like, and because they didn't see the natives as human beings, they, it was just all like a, a a thing to conquer and gain control and and use people as pawns. And so, so there's all that kind of obvious negativity. I've had huge arguments with friends who are kind of like I'm pretty liberal myself, but like they're like, no, no, these people were just disgusting human beings. I'm like, okay, yes, but. They, they were also diabolical geniuses. Like, Cortez was a genius the way he conquered and divided and, 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 and worked people as a chessboard. Like, I, I, even if you hate him, you got to go, holy shit, this guy was pretty amazing. Yeah. How do you walk that fine? How do you walk that balancing act as a writer, as a historian? Yeah, that's a really great question, man. I'm glad you brought that up because. Uh, I struggle sometimes with where, you know, I'm, I'm, as I'm studying about someone like Cortez and, and reading about what he's done, you know, there's an element of um, despicableness to, you know, with the hindsight of, with the lens of, of history and right. time. And you're like, wow, this guy, you know, what a terrible human being. But what I try to do is, uh, Place myself in the context of the time. Right. Um, I don't, and not, and it, and you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a live wire act, you know, because you're going well. I don't want to sound like I'm really supporting what this right. guy does, but I also am, in certain cases, blown away by the skills and ingenuity and the, like you said, the the kind of diabolical, maniacal genius uh, of someone knowing what they want and figuring out or what they're trying to achieve and figuring out how to do it. And so what I tried to do, at least in the case of conquistadors, because the, um, the Aztecs, you know, they had their own set. They, they pr- practiced human ritual sacrifice on a daily basis. So, right. you know, like nobody sort of uh, immune from critique. Right. Yeah, it's not this diabolical, you know, horrible guy that conquered this gentle people. No, they no. were pretty. They, they were, were pretty rough themselves. Oh my word! Yeah, and so what you try to do, what I try to do at least, is first and foremost, tell a great story in a historically right. accurate way. Uh, and so, you know, I'm very conscious of my, you know, of getting the story right so that. Uh, historians will will say, yeah, you know, to the extent that we can, we know these things, Levy got this right. But also to tell it in a way that makes you want to keep turning the pages, right? So it's not a right. dry tome, that it, it has cliffhangers. And these stories all did, you know. Um, they have cliffhangers and they have moments of incredible cinematic beauty and incredible drama where you just literally don't know what's going to happen next. And what I find so intriguing, Eric, is that uh, if I do it right, even when I know the result of the story, and even when the reader might sort of know generally what's going to happen, you're still hanging on going, because you've you've learned to, to empathize with the characters, right? And you care about what's going to happen to them. And so that is is where I think good storytelling takes place is that you, even if you know the outcome, it's still dramatic as hell. And is that part like as as a writer, um, your part is that the point to kind of like parse out, uh, you know, some of the more positive traits of these people 
you know, and separate that from, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, you can't look at a person like as a, they're black and white, you know, black and white, you know, concrete, you know, uh, uh, you, you have to parse out like things that might've been human about them. And then other things that were pretty despicable. I mean, I guess that's human beings in general, right? Like, you know, as we kind of pick apart, like a lot of the, you know, the, the forefathers of America and, you know, people are always picking apart Martin Luther King Jr. You're like, people aren't good or bad. They're, they're, they're humans. They're good and bad, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you, you brought that up because, the, you know, the characters that I encounter in these stories are, are multifaceted and complex. And even in this most recent book, Empire of Ice and Stone, where you, you essentially have a, a good guy and a, and a worse guy. I mean, you've kind of got a hero and a villain. <laughs> You've got to hear yeah. it on a villain. But, you know, I point out that Stephenson, you know, the hit, the the science that Stephenson ends up doing is incredible. Like he wrote he wrote a 700 page book on, um, you know, the friendly Arctic and his life with the Eskimo peoples. And and, you know, so he's more complex than just, wow, he abandoned his ship. But I so I try not to I just try to be brutally honest about right. who they are in the t in the situation and what they did and and w you know you can only look at it and, and say to yourself well what would i do in that situation and then judge it based on the information that they had at the time and so i, I yeah it's important i think to be fair minded and thorough in how you treat characters so that they don't seem as you say just black or white yeah well, as we're running out of time, I want to get to this one because one of your first books was about David Crockett, David Crockett, and uh, and I, I find that guy totally fascinating too. But here's my foundational observation that I want you to comment on. Uh, so he, he's another guy that's like amazingly resilient and resourceful and just bigger than life, and so you you respect the heck out of him. But you also say. Like, this guy is another exaggerator, another kind of bullshitter a little bit. And you go, like, it's kind of a microcosm of America. Like, we're this incredibly ambitious country. But, but you know, a lot of us are on TikTok, like, you know, exaggerating. And <laughs> yeah. I think I think Davy Crockett would have been on TikTok if he lived today. <laughs> you, you might be on TikTok. <laughs> um, no, so that's you know is that unfair no i mean you're really you're really right about crockett because one of the you know everybody i think what you find when you look at, at people generally and then historical figures uh specifically is like they have certain traits that you kind of circle around and you go ah that that's the thing about him right. you know and crockett was the he might have been the first person who was famous just for being famous like he he was you know yeah you're absolutely right he would have had a massive twitter following uh because crockett he did all these exploits and um once he started running for office there were all these you know, the oral tradition and the paper was just sort of happening at that point. But, he, you know, the, the newspaper. But, um, you know, he would arrive in towns and everybody would line up and they're slapping him on the back. And he loved the accolades and he milked it for all it was worth. He let these myths and stories run about how he killed 105 bars in a single year, you know. And he <laughs> just he just um, let the legend develop. And I think he he very much liked the spotlight. I mean, in the you know 
that book Crockett that I wrote, it opens with a scene, it's a really strange scene in history in which this playwright and actor is performing a play about this character named Nimrod Wildfire who's patterned on David Crockett. And Crockett is in the audience watching a, an actor play him on stage to a full house, right? And it's like, you know, how much better can it get? Like, it's like, it's like Tom Cruise or Ben Affleck sitting there watching them in the theater with you watching themselves on screen, you know? It's really strange. Do you think that that need to be in the spotlight almost, well, not almost, was kind of part of his demise? Because, so I guess he has three terms in Congress and then he gets booted out of Congress and then uh, and then he's like, wow, what do I do now? Like, let's head over to San Antonio and defend the settlers, you know, like another right. publicity stunt. And, yeah. And, yeah. So, and that didn't end well for him. Well, no. I mean, it had. Well, he ends up being uh, mythologized for the rest of history, and, and, oh, that's and so true. I, I guess it, in that sense, it it ends with him in the spotlight. Um, oh, but you know true. what I think, though, is that Crockett was. Um, look, he he was one of those guys who would, he's like us in a lot of ways. We would much rather be outside playing around in the mountains uh, than sitting in an in a office meeting, you know? So Congress was, like, tedious and painful for him. He was sitting there, like, daydreaming about all the... He really did love hunting and being out and camping in the woods, you know? And so yeah. for him, uh, once he was getting elected, I think he found the actual day-to-day -day congressional life to be brutally boring. And so he right. ended up heading, heading west to go find new land... Because he was also a terrible businessman and he kept going broke. And so he right. was like looking for new uh, possibilities in land. And then, which is another trait that runs through a lot of adventurers. They're terrible business people, even though they're incredible adventurers and explorers. Yeah. Right. You know, because, and, and uh, yeah, you look at, um, at the way that they want to spend their lives, it's, it's out there, whether it's at the helm of a ship, uh, you know, or, or leading people, you know, or on horseback in the case of Crockett, um, heading heading west and and trying to find new land uh, and hunting and fishing, or whether it's someone who's trying to, you know, uh, sail down a river that's never never been navigated before, you know, they're looking at the horizon and not like necessarily uh, the day to day minutia of how to uh, build an, a, a fiscal empire, right? <laughs> right. I, right. I think I'm kind of like that too, Eric. <laughs> I, I think I'm a little bit like that. So I, w I was thinking um, as I'm reviewing all your books, I feel really privileged uh, to know you, buddy, because I feel like I'm one of the few characters that you've written about that have lived. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That's really, really amusing that you say that. Um, and, and, and by the way, like, yeah, the No Barriers book and project was really uh, phenomenal for me. The, the, just the people, of course, that I met and, and getting to know you so well. But I did have a, a one. I'm, you know, I teach uh, English classes in, uh, at Wazoo, uh, Washington State University. And I had a one of my professors asked me once in a, you know, after the event reading, they raised their hand and he said, do you write any books in which no one dies? <laughs> and I said, uh, no, not so, not yet. <laughs> no, even in mine. Yeah, yeah. A few people died along the way. So. Yeah. I mean, okay. So next trilogy, since I, you know, 
took you to Greenland and you started this Arctic trilogy. I'm going to take you to the beach and Hawaii and we're going to write like a nice little book about puppies on the beach. It's going to be your next trilogy. Or you know, just puppies playing on the beach. It's going to be really sweet. No, but if we end up over there, what we'd, we'd probably write about the, you know, the Polynesian sailors that just headed out not knowing where they were, you know, Thor hired all and, uh, and all of these uh, great shipwreck stories. I love those. Oh, no, you're spending more disaster. <laughs> oh, no, but awesome. you might think this is cool. I didn't tell you this before. So that I've, you know, this book, Empire of Bice of Stone, is the second book. And the third one, which I am just starting, has to do with the first airships or dirigibles to attempt to fly to the North Pole in like the early 1900s. And it's amazing. Uh, you know, imagine taking off from like Svalbard, uh, north of Norway, and 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 going up in a blimp, and in it with a small and, motor. Hey, and for our listening audience, I'm not going to give anything away. I'm just going to give a hint. How's that? <laughs> yeah. The, by the way, when you head off to the North Pole in a blimp, disaster is in the itinerary. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so. Uh, last question for you, buddy. Like, and you've kind of already answered this, but just riff a little more with me on the idea of okay, you want to learn about Mexico, and you want to learn about the Arctic, and you want to learn about the Amazon. Cool, and you and you want to learn about history, but beyond that, why why do people read about these adventures that you are pulling out of history? Like, why is it important? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think because history has a lot to teach us. Um, f first and foremost, you know, I think the my stories are always adventure stories. But beyond that, they're stories about human nature. And human nature, I don't think it changes all that much. You know, we, we get new technologies and we get um, new communication devices and conveniences. But... Um, I think we can still learn a lot from the way people behave and what they end up doing in particular situations. And you can apply those things to modern settings, right? I mean, you know, you can, and, and also I think learning about um, just man, well, man's not the way of putting it, um, humankind's quest for knowledge and understanding. And so those things never uh, they change in format and they change in what we will approach. Uh, but we have those historical precedents to kind of fall back on and see what people did and what we might do, you know. And I think there are some really useful um, analogs, right? I mean, we're still currently, we're, we're still questing for things. We're still trying to, you know, find our way to Mars, maybe. We're trying to go back to the moon again. Um, we're trying to... Uh, but also we're striving to do things like solve energy crises. And so I think these historical models provide innovators and, and thought leaders who, who show us the way to do the kind of things that we're going to need to do in the future if we're going to survive on this big rock, you know. Uh, and so I, I, that, that, those are, to me, the sort of connective tissue that, they, that. that history has for us. Yeah. Also, you know, the fact that people are motivated by ambition and greed. And, and that's a, you know, obviously you th think that's obviously very negative, but like 
I guess some good things came out of ambition and greed. Terrible things, but also some positive things. Well, yeah, and, like and discovery. I, right, we're still striving, and you know, we're still striving in that way. We're, you know, somebody creates a cure for cancer. Sure, it was to you know do the right thing, and but but it's partly they're probably thinking about their legacy and the money they can make off of it. You know what I mean? It's kind of this mixed bag. Yeah, I mean, I agree. But so I think that what does come out of it, and some of this connects, you know, directly to the the tenets of No Barriers, is like innovation happens when, you know, you're in dire straits, but also discovery and, you know, that people are, and they, they end up being pioneers because they need to figure out a new way to do something. And I think these models are very appropriate today. And like I said, in the ways that we're, I mean, I'm writing this new book about, the first blimps to go to the Arctic. But you know what's happening right now is that it's called Airship 2.0. Some of the biggest companies in the world are creating airships that are going to be used as mobile roving satellite stations uh, above imperiled places uh, who you know where tsunamis have hit. They're going to be taking the you know dropping aid off from these blimps, and, and you know so it's like that technology has gotten. It was there. We tried it. We failed, but it was a good idea. And even though the Hindenburg blew up, we're reloading. Uh, and some of the major companies in the world are going, yeah, this is this is really something that, we, that needs to happen. And it can help uh, humans. It can help all of us. Gosh, yeah. It's wild. And those early pioneers were the guinea pigs. Absolutely. And sometimes, uh, you know, guinea pigs don't make it. Right, right. Well, I'm glad you and I made it, buddy. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for being on the No Barriers podcast and for being a part of the No Barriers journey and, and being so close to to, to all my, the work that we've been trying to achieve. So it's, it's fun. And uh, hopefully I'll see you this next summer at the next summit. You bet. Hey, great honor to be on with you, Eric. I really appreciate it. And, and keep doing the, the awesome work that you all are doing. It's, it makes a lot of difference and it's changing lives. All right. And I'm so glad your book's crushing it, man. It's just exciting to see. Thanks. I really appreciate it. You deserve it. it. You've been working your butt off. So it's been very impressive. Yeah. Well, someone reached out to me yesterday and said, you know, they got the New York Times. It came out in the Sunday paper and they said, oh, this is amazing. And I said, well, that only took 62 years. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, what is that? What was this book? What, your eighth book? Yeah, my, my, uh, my eighth book. Eighth book. Yes. It only took eight books. (laughs) All right. Thanks, friend. Hey, appreciate it. No barriers to everyone. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Jonk, that's me, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman, marketing and graphics support from Stone Lord, and web support by Jamlo. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at NoBarriersPodcast.com. That's NoBarriersPodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much, and have a great day. See you.